we're doing a series at the moment on Christian identity, basically looking at all the different images that we find in the Bible for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, and this morning we're looking at what it means to be human. Um, and uh, <laughs> that, that'll be, uh, we'll be looking at that in just a moment. Uh, but let me, uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, we just pray uh, that we would know your presence with us this morning. Uh, we'd know your love. Uh, we'd know something more of who you are and what it means to follow you. So speak to us uh, by the power of your spirit, enlightening your word. Amen. Yes, yeah, so I don't know what you think of when you think of what it means to be human. Uh, you've already had a little snapshot. Ali, let's have a, uh, let's have a look at that. Here are some ways in which uh, the world often thinks of uh, what it means to be human. Uh, firstly, this is Jane Goodall, uh, famous for Gorillas in the Mist, um, if, if you've seen that film. Uh, she said this, human beings are nothing but upright animals with a taste for clothes and complicated food. Um, here's uh, another one from Stephen Hawking. Uh, are we just simply biological machines? I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. Uh, one more for you, uh, a little bit uh, darker. I'm actually I'm going to read this. This was an uh, a anonymous comment in a blog. Um, and uh, the full uh, comment said, when I was a kid, I always wondered what drove ants to line up and work all day for the queen. Now I work a boring job all day and for low pay so that execs can get millions. I am just an ant in traffic. Um, so those are, those are three ways of looking at what it means to be human. Um, but of course, I th if, if you're anything like me, they leave, they leave me at least feeling a little bit like there must be more to it than that. There must be something that isn't as inherently meaningless as actually all three of those in many ways. Um, and of course, the question then is, what does it mean as a Christian to be uh, human? Uh, is there a sense in which the Bible breathes a meaningfulness into that. And of course, that will be inherent in uh, our relationship with God. Um, the William Temple uh, had this quote, which will appear uh, on the screen. This is the first half of it. What, uh, so it says, my worth is what I'm worth to God. Now, of course, then we have to ask, well, what is it that we look to in this world, uh, in our experience of God, to show us what we are worth to God. And, and of course, the, the, the fairly obvious answer, I suppose, would be the cross. But I actually want to take us somewhere else. I don't know if you know the story of, um, of actually, before we get on to that, that and, and actually, that's where William Temple takes, takes the rest of this quote. Let's have, let's have a look at the, it in its fullness. My worth is what I'm worth to God, and that is a marvelous great deal, for Christ died for me. Um, that's been a really helpful quote for me for many, many years, reminding myself uh, of my worth to God because of his uh, willingness to die for me. And I don't want to take anything away from that, but actually I do want to challenge it ever so slightly because I think there is something slightly obvious about that. Let me tell you the story of the, uh, the, the Sunday school group um, at who uh, the Sunday school teacher asked the children, okay, children, what is gray? and has a big fluffy tail, and eats nuts. There's a silence in the room. Come on, children, you know what this is. What's grey? 
has a fluffy tail and eats nuts. And eventually a little girl put up her hand and said, Miss, I, I know the answer's Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> Sometimes there's an obviousness to our answers. Um, uh, that we, we know what the right answer should be, but I actually want to push us in a slightly different direction. I think there's an event, uh, as an action by God, that displays his valuing of us even more than the cross. Now, did you ever expect me to say that? I, I, have, um, I have the bishop glaring at me from the back. Have you noticed this? Um, and he's glaring at me. We, we were debating at the, at the nine. Is he actually... He looked, there's something Bond-like about him. Uh, bishop, I, I'm... The name's Graham, Bishop Graham. Though, though somebody at the nine suggested actually he looks more like a Bond villain. So in two weeks' time when he comes, see if you can imagine him stroking a white cat. But just, to, just also remember, not wanting to be flippant, that he was the face of compassion for the Grenfell Tower disaster. Which he, so he's actually a hugely compassionate man. Anyway, that's the end of that. We can all forget about the bishop. I, but he's staring at me with a look of, how dare you say such an outrageous thing in church, that there is something that dis displays God's valuing of us more than the cross of Christ. What on earth might I be talking about? And I'm talking about an event that doesn't actually even have a day that is in, in the Christian year to, to celebrate. Um, and, and that is simply this. It is, it is our creation. Our createdness is actually the first place we go to know that God values us. Uh, there is nothing uh, necessary about our creation. The whole of creation is, on a philosophical level, inherently superfluous. Uh, God didn't need us, didn't need to create us or anything else. He chose to. Um, there is something in the sheer fact that we exist uh, that, under God, reflects the fact that we are valuable, our humanness is inherently our value. Though, of course, when we know the Christian story, what we see is that that humanness is marred uh, and it is broken. Um, and it is because of that that we find ourselves back at the cross, where our, our, human, the, the, our value is reaffirmed in the death of Christ. We, we hear that... Um, that God's valuing of us does not run out when we reject him, but it stretches all the way through the cost of his own life to bring us back to him, to restore us to our humanness. And that brings us to uh, the first of our readings, um, which is from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, page 1174. Um, part of the nature of a sermon series like this is that often we don't really dig into passages in, on their own terms, which is what we normally do, but we take a particular thread or a particular theme within them. And this morning, there's going to be a little bit of mirroring between two passages, this Ephesians 2 passage and in a minute, Genesis 1. So feel free to keep a finger in both. Um, that means that there's lots in this Ephesians 2 passage that we won't really get to unpack. Um, but uh, hopefully you'll see where I'm going. Ephesians 2, verse 12 and following. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of, uh, covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, and this is the key pivot here, um, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. It uses the word man here, more contemporary translations which simply use the word humanity. Uh, Out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those of you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So lots in there that we, we're not going to have a chance to unpack. But let me just give you uh, uh, that, uh, a little snapshot of what's going on in this book. That This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he's reflecting on how, uh, through the cross of Christ, our relationship with God is restored. And also how that overflows into our relationship with each other. That our relationships with each other are also restored. Um, and he uses this illustration of the temple. Now, the funny thing about temples is that although on the, on the one hand, they're the place where uh, people that have temples, we don't have temples in, as, as Christians, uh, but those faiths that do have temples, the temple is in some ways the place you go to meet with God. And yet very often, they're also the place that display most clearly the otherness, the, other, the unapproachableness of God. And certainly the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was just like that. Um, And wherever you were in Jerusalem, especially if you weren't a Jew, you would have looked up at this enormous temple towering over you and known yourself to be excluded from it. Um, And even if you weren't excluded, if you were a Jew, there was a sense of coming into the temple. you, You could only approach the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, so far, depending on who you were, what your gender was, what your ethnicity was, uh, what sacrifices you had performed, some of these things. There were these walls that, that, that separated you not only from God, but from each other. Um, and to continue Paul's analogy, it's as if that in the cross, Jesus takes a wrecking ball to all of these walls and just knocks them down and says, we all, on the same basis, get to come right into God's presence once again. So that's kind of what's going on in uh, this passage. But I want to look at that idea in the middle of the passage, uh, simply that that is the way in which Christ creates a new humanity. Um, Note that, for our purposes, that new humanity is defined relationally. It is defined in terms of our relationship with God and with each other, through which, uh, through, th- to which we are restored through the cross. Um, that is what the new humanity is. So to unpack that a little bit, I want to go to our other passage, which is in Genesis chapter 1, uh, which is on page 4. If you want to keep a finger in Ephesians, then we'll, we will uh, slip back to it at some point. Let me read to you Genesis 1. 26 and following. Uh, so this is, this is the sort of pinnacle of the creation story. Most of the rest of the world has been created, but God hasn't yet created humanity. And God said, verse 26, let us make humanity, mankind, in our image, 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and everything, every living creature that moves on the ground. So, thinking of our definition of what it means to be human, what we see there is that our original de uh, human definition was built into us being the image of God that we were to be his continuing presence in the world of, that ordered the world in a way that enabled it to flourish. That's what it means to be human. Um, we do that in partnership with God, but we also do it collaboratively with others. Do you see how being fruitful and increasing in number, effectively creating a society of humans, is part of what it means to be human? That's... That, uh, relational component to each other is part of our humanity. And then, of course, as part of that also is that sense that the earth beneath our feet is part of our humanity in the way that we relate to it as well. Um, a friend of mine called Krish Kandaya um, has created some re a really nice, simple illustration uh, to look at this. And uh, this, uh, that's, yeah, here's the first picture. I should apologize if you imagine that one of the sort of two people, I know that it's a gent sign, I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but one, one, one of the, on, on the sides, should be a mirror rather than two people. There was a computer problem which meant I wasn't able to um, complete the picture. Uh, anyway, that's apology over. Just try and imagine that as we go through this. Uh, this, is, this, is how, this is how this goes. Simply, God created us. Um, he created us to be his presence of ordering and flourishing over the earth. He created us to be in perfect relationship with each other in that task and with a right sense of self. That would be the mirror on the other side. However, and then this is the, the next diagram. When we get to the, the, the next couple of chapters, if we, uh, Genesis chapter 3, we see that all of those relationships break. We see uh, that we turn in on ourselves and we reject our relationship with God, his commissioning of us, uh, which breaks our relationship with him and also breaks our relationship with the earth beneath our feet. And in this new broken world, fear and mistrust enter in. And we become suspicious of each other. Our relationship with each other starts to break. And the net result is we simply no longer know what it means to be human. Our relationship with our own self, in many ways, also breaks. And uh, it is into this that the cross happens. And in the cross, all of these relationships are restored. That through uh, what Christ does on the cross uh, in enabling our sins to be wiped away, our relationship with God fully restored, um, we are also recommissioned effectively uh, to be all that we were commissioned to be in Genesis 1, to be carers of the earth, enabling it to be ordered and flourish. Um, but we are also restored to each other, uh, which takes us back to our Ephesians passage in particular, uh, in our doing this together. Um, and 
in those restored relationships, we rediscover who we ourselves are. And of course, that's the other arm of what you might have now noticed to be a cross. Um, so, which is nice and convenient as a little illustration of what the cross means. Apart from, of course, the fact that it puts us in the middle of it, which is, um, but it is, it is the world experienced from our point of view, you might say. Um, as we land ourselves back then in our Ephesians 2 passage that we were looking at, um, let me give you another tiny bit of uh, background to what's going on there. Throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament it really is the story of how God invites a people to be his agents of restoration, uh, to be his agents of blessing to the world uh, and to the peoples of the world. And along with that goes this invitation into, to, to have a special access to God himself. But to cut a very long story short, that special access becomes a look how great we are, um, effectively, and actually becomes the cause of these walls uh, that the walls of the Jerusalem temple represent. Um, it is not until Christ, the ultimate Israelite, and in fact the ultimate human, uh, that uh, our humanity is ultimately fully restored. Um, and that is uh, part of what is going on in this passage. There no longer needs to be a special people of Israel. We are all invited in Christ to participate in this new people, this new humanity. So do you see uh, what a Christian thinks a human is? Do you see how a, human think, a, a Christian is, is actually a human rehumanized? Uh, that actually to, to, to not follow Christ is actually to some degree to be sub-human, to be reduced to an advanced ape, a biological computer, or an antenna machine. So that's the glory of uh, what Christ did, is he invites us back into the fullness of our humanity he invites us into those relationships which are, which are what make us actually human. But I just want to point one last thing out, and this is again embedded more in our Genesis passage, that those relationships are not static relationships. Uh, those relationships are expressed in, in action, in all of life. And therefore, looking at this image, to, to follow Christ is to image the res these restored relationships in the way we live every day as those who follow God, uh, follow the, his purposes for this world in seeing it flourish, uh, are restored to each other, and therefore have a right sense of who we are in God. Um, and actually... Whatever you're going to be doing this week, you should be able to think of it. And if you can't, I'm sure you can with a bit of thought. Think of what you're doing this week in those kinds of terms. What are the, what are the relationships uh, that you are restoring this week? Um, are you going to be focused uh, 
on that top one, our, our people's relationship with, with God directly. Most of you probably won't be directly. Uh, most of you might be more focused on, uh, on society, enabling society to function. Um, maybe you'll have an element of being particularly focused on enabling society to do its job of looking after the earth. Or it might be that your role is more uh, about enabling people to know who they are, to become fully who they are in society and over uh, the earth. But all of this happens under God uh, and our commissioning, uh, our createdness, and our restoration through the cross into all that God would want us to be, our full humanity. So in just a moment of quiet, I'd invite you just to think about the week that lies ahead. Think about how uh, your week expresses the fullness of your cross-shaped humanity.